It is indeed another blessing, isn't it, that we've been granted and given to assemble in the way that we are. As I look over the audience, so thankful certainly for each and every individual that's assembled and gathered here. Perhaps it would at least be reasonable, though, to, to say if, uh, several individuals made comments just a few moments ago prior to the beginning of our services about the impact and the effect this morning's lesson had. It wasn't my intent for it to be, to be, I guess, in that sense, but it was my hope that it could be motivational for each of us and certainly for those who've already advanced past the fourscore years to give thought to the greatness of God's blessing and even how much in that way we can still appreciate the faithfulness that's ours to serve the God of heaven. I did hope, though, that the consideration of a clock that way might leave an indelible imprint to each of us to think about the wisdom of living correctly and the wisdom of living in such a way that we would, of course, look forward to midnight and to appreciate the great life that's beyond. Tonight's lesson, we continue the Holy Spirit. Installment number nine. We began this series in April. We have now, of course, almost come to the end of July, and I know there's been a few Sunday evenings that other matters have come our way, but I do hope that the lesson has continued to be at least helpful and fruitful, beneficial for each of us. As you can tell, tonight's lesson will involve the general work in relation to the Holy Spirit in the church. This opening slide is in many ways just a very brief summary one by one of the major topics that we have considered throughout this series. Everything from the opening one in which we highlighted the nature of the Holy Spirit, that He is a divine personality, and as such, we would do well to refer to Him that way. But not only that, one by one we've looked at everything from His work in creation, to revelation, to the baptism, to the gift, to the gifts, to the indwelling, and even to more recent matters near the bottom, things related to conversion, and certainly more recently, even the understanding of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Tonight, for the first consideration, why don't we give some thought to some of the interesting things the Bible teaches about the ongoing blessing of the Spirit in relation to the overall work of the church. When you and I, of course, as members of the body of Christ, appreciate the work of the church, one of the things we will learn rather immediately tonight is that that work will not proceed, and it will not be done sufficiently and correctly without the Holy Spirit. With that being said, let's then look at the first part of the lesson. As we identify using some passages in the Word of God, those features about the work of the Spirit. I hope that you have your Bible, and as we look at several of these passages, I think we'll be reminded about the amazing character of the Spirit's role in the work of the church. First of all, let's make a connection. In James 2.26, we learn something about the physical body. Namely, there the body without the Spirit is dead. And yet, as we understand that, we know the Bible teaches that the human being is an immortal spirit, made, of course, in the image and likeness of God. And at the time of conception, we appreciate that Spirit inhabits a physical body, a body that's made of flesh and bones, and it has within it the other things we recognize of a physical character. But there comes a time when that Spirit departs the body. We call that death. It leaves the body behind lifeless. But the Spirit is still alive. The Spirit just dwells elsewhere. Well, there it is at the top of that slide. 
You and I know just a moment ago, Brother Dennis read for us from 1 Corinthians 3. And it says something about the Spirit. Let's look at that passage again. Verses 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians 3. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. From our understanding of the Old Testament, we understand about the concept of a temple. It was this structure that was built. Although David prepared the elements for it, it was actually Solomon's oversight and leadership that was such that it was prepared then. But here was a physical structure in which was that fixed entity that you and I would call the Ark of the Covenant. And not only that, we appreciate then that here was a dwelling place for the things that were representative of God. With that idea in mind, verse 16 again said, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? That's one of those famous rhetorical questions that Paul was really good at asking. So he directed these, <clears throat> this concept <clears throat> excuse me, to the church at Corinth. And as such, he pointed out to them, Don't you know, you are the temple of God. And then he further elaborates by saying, The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now it's interesting to give thought to what is being taught to you and to me in a passage like that one. Here we learn the church in Corinth was the receptacle, it was the place wherein the Spirit of God was dwelling. It was this place wherein the Holy Spirit of God was active and alive and doing things. And as we've learned in previous lessons, not in any supernatural forced presence in the individual lives of the people, but through the agency of the Word. And in so doing, the next verse said, "...if any man defile that temple, that temple of God..." Him shall God destroy. That immediately reminds us of the incredible danger that comes with doing something to cause harm and damage to the church which Jesus' blood purchased. But then it goes on to say, The temple of God is holy, which temple you are. As you and I seek to make application of that, say, to the Pippin congregation, we realize then that a passage like this one is teaching us that the Spirit of God dwells here. The Holy Spirit is active and alive in the things that this congregation carries out, in the various works that are done, in the avenues of when we assemble and the characteristics of worship and the other things that take place. So much so that you'll notice on this slide, we've learned that the Spirit, of course, has provided the Word and how thankful we are for that Word, for the perfect guidance that it provides for the nature of that which it makes possible. But this comment is thus in order. So what physically? To say then that the Spirit inhabited that congregation at Corinth, and to say that it inhabits this one here, what are some practical benefits of this? May I suggest a few of them? Using the Word of God as our guide, could we begin with unity? The Holy Spirit promotes the reality of unity. I know that in the current religious world, and it has been so now for several hundred years, but there is such division. There is such disharmony. 
there is such an obvious characteristic of the lack of unity. And yet, the Holy Spirit, we are specifically told in the Word of God, promotes unity. Are we not taught it like this? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Where the Spirit guides and where the Spirit leads, there shall be unity. Because it is the unity of the Spirit that's promoted. In the religious world today, then, with all of its denominationalism, that lack of unity is a clear signal and sign, then, that the Spirit's not behind this. The Spirit does not promote this denominational idea. There are other passages, for instance, like these. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, At the moment an individual is scripturally baptized, what is it that takes place? Paul, to that Corinthian congregation, said it like this, You are baptized by one Spirit into one body. Now that's pretty strong. In fact, that is extraordinarily powerful. For it is the agency of the Spirit, as you and I learned in the matter of conversion a couple of lessons ago, as Jesus again told Nicodemus, you must be born again by water and the Spirit. When one is scripturally baptized, it is the agency of that Spirit that leads one into one body. But finally, one final verse in Ephesians 2 verse 22, where there the unity of the Spirit is highlighted in such a dramatic and beautiful way. On occasion, of course, you and I are so keenly aware of the unity that exists in a group of people who love the Lord, who love the Bible, and who love one another. They are there to encourage, to rejoice with each other. They're there to provide assistance and to help for those who are struggling in some way. And there's this general sense whereby there's a unity that goes beyond the matters which often the nature of physical things would enjoin. Isn't it true that many an individual in the church would feel closer to his or her Christian brothers and sisters that on many occasions they would to even their physical family? Because perhaps the physical family doesn't appreciate Jesus, doesn't appreciate the Word of God, and really does not have the hope of heaven at this point in their life. Needless to say, that element in unity is very practical. I would hope that you and I can feel that every time we give serious thought to the church of our Lord. On occasion, you and I perhaps even experience it sometimes when we're traveling. Have you ever been to a distant congregation somewhere? Perhaps you're traveling in a distant state, and you certainly, as would always be right, find a place of worship on the Lord's day. Both times, and also Wednesday evening. And yet, you assemble with brethren, and they give you a smile and shake your hand and welcome you sometimes even invite you for lunch, they're thankful you're there. They enjoy your brotherhood in the nature of the blood of Christ. But perhaps yet another thing that the Spirit provides to us is that we may think about the nature of the ongoing work of the church. As you and I realize, the New Testament, it would seem, allows the work of the church to be at least divided into these ways. What about evangelism? When evangelism is done by the church, in whatever mechanism it takes form, is it not the case the Spirit has a hand in this? Let's look at, for instance, Acts 8, verse 29. 
It was here that you and I might remember. It's a scene very familiar to us. There was an Ethiopian nobleman who had come from a far distance to Jerusalem to worship and was in the process of returning back homeward. When at that point, someone gave Philip some instruction, go and join yourself to the chariot. I suppose it's easy to read past that, but who gave the instruction to Philip? The text is very clear. It says the Spirit did it. Here was the Spirit active in the matter of evangelism. There's a nobleman who is earnest and honest and open to the truth. His heart is fertile. Philip, go preach to him. Join yourself to the chariot. Today, perhaps you and I can understand. We shouldn't expect the Spirit to individually operate on us in that way, but doesn't it give us sometimes a very clear measure of discerning the life of some other person that that person might be open to a discussion about the Bible? Or that person could well be a wonderful candidate for inviting to the services of the church. Sometimes as you and I think then about the nature of the Word of God and that great commission given to us, we certainly can think about matters along that line. Another verse that teaches us something similar in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, as Paul opened that Thessalonian letter, it was to them that he made mention of several wonderful truths, but of them was the nature of the Spirit and the Spirit's work in bringing Paul to that area and the work that was done there. That's a marvelous example, isn't it? But surely even beyond evangelism, let's consider yet another one. There is a matter known as edification, a word that simply means to build up, to strengthen. The Spirit has a role in this too. Now we've already learned the evangelism, one is prompted through the nature of the Word which the Spirit has given us. But as you and I look at 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11 and 1 Corinthians 14 12, we learn that that church in Corinth was one such that they were admonished so strongly to be built up but it was done, Paul said, by the gifts available from the Spirit. Well, one more time, note again the Spirit's consideration. I realize that as we consider that point, it certainly reminds us of the miraculous gifts. Hold on to the thought, though, with me. In a few moments, we're going to make a connection to something that's very practical and meaningful for you and me today. That though we do not enjoy the miraculous gifts... There's a principle behind that that is still very much present and real for us. One last one would be the matter in benevolence. These kindly good deeds that the Bible would authorize, such that one seeks to do good to all men, but especially unto those who are the household of faith. Look, for instance, at 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. Here you and I learn something about this teaching of the Spirit that brings us to understand and to carry out those very kinds of works. So whether it be evangelism or edification or benevolence, we appreciate the leading instruction of the Word of God available from the Spirit that truly does lead us to see the truthfulness and the rightfulness of all those things. May I suggest, though, another set of ideas. The leadership of the church... Now, you and I know, of course, that's housed in the men we call elders. 
these who the Bible recognizes as overseers and those who are called, of course, the various titles such as having oversight. But there's something rather remarkable taught to us in Acts 20, 28. Paul addressed a grouping of elders. Here was a fantastic leadership workshop. There was a group of elders assembled and Paul was instructing them. Here's what he said. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Who then establishes, positions a man as an elder over a congregation? That text said the Spirit does it. When a man's name is put before a congregation, this man, having met these qualifications, will be installed as an elder on this particular day. It is through the qualifications the Spirit has taught, the agency, the office the Spirit has described, and the reality of the work which the Spirit upholds. And that man will occupy that office. He's ordained by the Holy Spirit. It is not that he's elected merely by popular vote. That's not the point. Point is, it is a work maintained and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that a powerful consideration? In addition to leadership, what about those of us as Christians? It is said of us in Galatians 5.25, We live in the Spirit, and if so, we should walk in the Spirit. Each and every day, not just on Wednesdays or Sundays, but every day we thrill at the thought of doing what is right to please our Heavenly Father, for we love Him. We're thankful for what He did for us, and we want to serve Him. And it's the Spirit is such that we want to walk in that Spirit. I've asked you to consider that text in Galatians chapter 5, but there's a passage in Romans chapter 8 that also has much to say about this very point. Would you look with me at the opening couple of verses of Romans chapter 8? Perhaps the three verses that will be needful for us will be merely the first three, and they read like this. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. What a powerful passage. There's no condemnation to those who walk, not after the flesh. But how? After the Spirit. As you and I walk after the Spirit, there is not a sentence of condemnation hanging over us. There's a sentence of life, a sentence of, shall we say, the blessedness of eternal good things. Surely that good news lifts our spirits in every way we seriously contemplate it. Let's journey onward in our lesson. In Galatians chapter 5, a passage to which we referred a moment ago, there is a more extended passage. I'd like, I would invite us to not only read it, but to at least pause from time to time and to reflect on some of the matters in connection to the Holy Spirit. As we discuss the general work of the Spirit, 
It says, beginning in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's one of those famous lists of Paul of bad stuff. Things which are not only displeasing to God, but which will condemn one's soul. Thankfully, let's read on though. Things get much better. But, please note the word of contrast. We just read these works of the flesh. These things which the flesh pursues apart from the Spirit. But it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Already we've learned something dramatic. Fruit identifies that which is born by, that which it comes as a part of. And in this case, it is the Spirit. Here's what the Spirit produces. Here's what the Spirit makes possible. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. I mentioned earlier about the unity, the concept of it, available from the Spirit. Now we are seeing this listing of the so-called fruits of the Spirit. The first one, the top of the list, the zenith, if you please, is love. You'll notice on the slide, there are many passages that might have been selected to highlight the beauty, the reality of love. That love is certainly many-faceted. There, first of all, is love for God. We love Him more than anyone or anything else. In Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. Following that, in the next verse, love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. We're also told, of course, that we love one another. Did Jesus say, By this shall all men know you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. So love, it is the chief fruit of the Spirit. That avenue and that attribute of love, notice what follows it. Joy. Perhaps one could talk at length about the concept of joy. We live in a world so often filled with despair. It is a world that's so negative. It is a world that, quite frankly, is filled with what is harmful. It's filled with what will hurt you. There seems to be such jealousy on every hand. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we find the fruit of the Spirit is joy. May I ask, are you happy? Are you contented? Do you feel satisfaction? Are you a person, though, in the midst of the difficulties and trials that this world seems to inundate us with, you nonetheless can rise above it just as a float above a very discouraging sea beneath? I'm reminded of Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. If you have joy, that's a signal that there's something connected to the Spirit in your life because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. 
a sense whereby you understand this world is not all that there is. There's something far better beyond it. And so it is. Paul said the second fruit of the Spirit is joy. But look at the third one. You notice here, peace. Now surely joy and peace are such that they work wonderfully together. But they certainly are a bit different. Peace is that appreciation in which one sees that the opposite of peace is easy to understand. And so maybe it's in that contradistinction that we can see when there's turmoil, when there's strife, when there's warfare, when there is infighting. That's the opposite of peace. Jesus promised in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. In John 16, 33, He said, The world will bring you no peace, but I will bring you peace. When you and I give thought then to the existence of peace, perhaps you and I can remember Noah. When those floodwaters came, imagine the turmoil that existed in those waters. Remember, we're told that not only did the rain come from above, but the fountains of the great deep were opened. There was water churning from beneath, water pouring down from above. There must have been dramatic currents in that water. I'd suggest the Grand Canyon is one great evidence of such currents. It must have been amazing to see that rip trees out of the earth and move mountains and gigantic rocks. What turmoil, and yet, aboard the ark... There was security. There was peace. God remembered Noah, Genesis 8 verse 1. And you can appreciate there that there was a sense, no doubt, of calm and great appreciation for the tranquility that existed amongst those that were saved. Peace. Let's add to that another one. The fourth one listed as the fruit of the Spirit, long-suffering. That word literally means patience. It means forbearance, an attribute, an attitude whereby one is able to suffer long with someone else, to appreciate their circumstances and to perhaps have an element of patience with them. Quite often the world is a matter of instant things. I want it now. Don't make me wait for it. I want it now. It's often been said that even in these modern days, instant coffee isn't fast enough. Be that as it may, you and I know that there is something dramatic to be said about patience. Didn't David say it so well in the long ago? I will wait on the Lord. Psalm 27 verse 14. There is something to be said today about you and I understanding that God's vision is perfect. Our timetable will often differ from His, and we need to trust His and realize that things will be on His timetable. May we be earnest and faithful in prayer and understand, of course, that long-suffering is connected dramatically to salvation in 2 Peter 3, verse 15. The salvation of the Lord is long-suffering. Have you and I often been thankful for God's patience? Have you ever found yourself in life guilty of something and you pray to God for forgiveness and you're thankful for it and then a few days later you do it again? A few days later you fall into that temptation and engage in that activity again and you pray again for God's forgiveness. 
perhaps over several times of doing that, you begin to wonder, will God still forgive me? May we never forget God is long-suffering. Our God is a long-suffering God. How often did He extend patience to the children of Israel? A people who time and again were thankful for His blessings and then turned their back upon Him. Turned their eyes toward idols and their eyes toward other nations that didn't love God. And yet when they would cry to Him, He would welcome them back home. I seem to recall there was the father of a prodigal son... The son gathered up all his inheritance and went to a far distant country and lived horribly, doing what dad would never have allowed at home. And yet, when he found himself in dire straits, it says he came to himself, Luke 15, 24, and he came back home. And when dad saw him coming, he was thrilled to see him arrive, and he was so happy and joyful. My son who was dead is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. You and I can be thankful when the wandering child comes back home. God is still long-suffering. As that list continues, though, you'll notice it brings us to gentleness. Number five in the list. Gentleness, and that word literally means integrity, moral goodness, kindness. There's a bit of latitude in that Greek word, actually. And yet, as you and I make the connection to passages such as 2 Corinthians 6, verse 6, we notice then that the Spirit, the fruit of it, will uphold what you and I would recognize as virtue. I know how thrilling it is when any of us appreciate a person who has moral virtue. The moral character of our world seemingly is directed in such a bad way where people have lost the sense of right and wrong. They often seemingly do not consider anything shameful anymore. And yet there are still those individuals whose parents directed them in the way of right, who led them to see certain things are disgraceful, certain things are inappropriate, and certain things you just don't ever, ever do. May you and I be thankful that the Spirit is the one behind the teaching of the Bible when it comes to matters such as moral goodness. In another famous listing of the Word of God, this one due to Peter, giving all diligence add to your faith virtue. That word virtue again is moral excellence. And one more time, how often we thrill when we appreciate its existence in the lives of individuals and where else are we going to find this than in those who love the Word of God and who strive to live by it. It's no wonder we get excited to think about the church. When we come here, all of that nonsense that the world lifts so high is not only not approved, it isn't condoned either. We, in fact, despise it because God does. The next on the list is goodness. Uprightness of life. A person who tries to guide him and herself by the truth. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14, verse 25. Surely in light of ideas like that one, when men and women try to guide their own way, it will invariably lead nowhere good. It will lead to, in fact, disaster. It will lead to hurt and harm for them and likely others that are around them and those that love them. 
but yet that way that God directs, drawn from Jeremiah 10, 23, you and I appreciate there, Oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. The next one on the list, faith. One of the fruits of the Spirit is said to be faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is an inspired dissertation on the subject of faith. It is the subject of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It is not stepping out where one has no instruction and no guidance. Rather, faith is that conviction to do what God has told me to do simply because He's told me. And He has given me all the evidence that should lead to the trustworthiness in His direction. When He says that certain things are bad and that they will harm you, isn't it amazing? Medical science may not have figured that out for thousands of years. Now science would agree. But God said it in the Bible a long time before science ever wrote it. Faith is doing what God said to do because He said to do it. That idea in faith, notice, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. We've assembled tonight on a Sunday. No doubt many others have chosen many other things to do. Sometimes as perhaps exciting as a day at the lake. For others, mowing a yard, playing golf. Many, many other things could be listed. We're here because God said this is where we ought to be. And we are somewhat excited about the benefit to us and our opportunity to magnify Him. This essence in faith leads us to two more. Meekness. There are those who would claim that meekness is weakness. That isn't so. Meekness is strength under control. May I say that again? Meekness is strength under control. That is to say, when an individual is challenged, to be meek is not to shy away and back away, but rather to control one's agencies and one's capabilities in such a way to respond in the most effective and effectual way. Moses, it was said in Numbers chapter 12, was the meekest man that ever lived. The meekest man on the earth at that time at least. Today, when you and I appreciate meekness, we are strong in the Word of God. And yet, as meek, we nonetheless in humility will strive to embody that Word in the most effective way God would have us to do it. We never want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Romans 12 verse 3 because we realize that our strength comes from Him. Didn't Jesus say to Paul, after He had prayed three times for removal of that thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, He said, No, but my strength is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Notice Paul's strength came then. Paul, in your infirmities you will be strong as an example of me living in you. One more, temperance. That word literally means self-control. It literally has to do with the mastery of one's volition. There are many things the world will encourage us to pursue. Things that are wrong. Things that are unhealthy. Things that, quite frankly, will militate against our proper service to God. 
And yet you and I, in the midst of so many who encourage us to do that, are more than happy to say, no, I won't do that. And the reason why is because I've got these pursuits in life under control, and I will not be brought under the power of any. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. You and I are going to serve the Lord. That's our demand. That's our intent. And so it is. We'll close that slide with one final observation, and we'll use that to close our lesson as well. There's a little verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, and it is so quaint and so short. It only has four words in it, quench not the Spirit. And maybe as you and I have read that, we've often wondered, what does that mean? Why would Paul direct the church at Thessalonica not to quench the Spirit? As we close the lesson, let's discuss it like this. The word quench means to extinguish. It means to put out much like you would do a fire. And so that word, that verse means much like what it says. Don't put out the Holy Spirit. Don't extinguish the Holy Spirit. The sense being this. Certainly one might wonder, does that have a reference to the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that were available back then? That those brethren who lived back then were such that they should correctly and properly use those miraculous gifts which the Spirit made available. Perhaps that's part of the teaching, but it would seem from context that isn't all of it. There seems to be a much more major lesson. And it's the one I mentioned earlier tonight that still has such principle for us. The lesson is this, to every individual, God through the Spirit has made available various things of potential, things of possibility, things of skill, things of capacity and capability. And when Paul directed the church at Thessalonica, don't extinguish the Spirit. You make sure to use those skills that you have to carry out the work which the Spirit has authorized. Don't you quench the Spirit, but you allow the Spirit and those gifts, those particular skills that you have, to embolden others and to encourage the work, not to put it out. That lesson is needful for you and me. May you and I be those who use the general work of the Spirit of the church to carry out what we can in the effort of evangelism or benevolence or edification and that we seek to walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh, and that we seek to, of course, embody these fruits of the Spirit that we have just quickly studied in Galatians chapter 5. As our series of lessons on the Holy Spirit continues, let me at least use a moment to give a bit of statement of the one that's coming up next. Have you ever given thought to the connection that exists between a person's prayer life and the Holy Spirit. We'll give some thought to that on the next occasion. What could be said about our prayers and the things the Spirit should help us with? We'll discuss that then. But for right now, are you quenching the Spirit in your life? That is to say, have you turned your back, if you please, upon what the Spirit has taught? Though perhaps a faithful Christian at one time, have you begun to live after the world? If so, you're quenching the Spirit. And you need to, of course, not do that. 
if we could be of help to you tonight in rededicating your life to Jesus Christ, we'd be honored to assist. If you'll repent and confess those things, we'll be happy to pray to God on your behalf. And He has assured all of us, and you in particular, He'll forgive you. He'll hold those things against you never again. If tonight we could be of help to you, we encourage you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.